morning, she talked $15 was... And we're back for another episode of Dead Married. I'm Travis. What's up? I'm Ashley. So this week we're going to cover the 1997 sci-fi horror, I guess that's what we're going to call it, movie Event Horizon. Yeah, we are. (laughs) So tell us about it. Well, this film was directed by Paul W.S. Anderson, pretty much straight off of Mortal Kombat. Um, And it was written by Philip Eisner, who, funnily enough, this movie kind of killed his career, like... He didn't write another movie for almost, or like, over a decade after this because of the critical and financial failure that it was, which I don't think is entirely fair. Yeah, so I watched this movie a long, years ago, right? Uh Not not long after it came out, probably, but it scared the hell out of me. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I remembered I really liked it. And anytime somebody brings up Event Horizon, I was always like, yeah, I like that movie. But I think I've watched it three or four times preparing for this, only to find out that it's got some problems that I, I guess I didn't see it the first time around, but didn't you say there was a lot of studio interference? Yeah, it was just, I thought it funny because last week or the week before we had brought it up and I had mentioned it and you were like, yay, like you were actually really excited to cover this one. I was, but then, I don't know, I guess I'd never watched it with a critical eye before uh-huh. necessarily. And it's it's different when you sit down with a movie and you start trying to take notes on it. Right. Because then you really see plot points. You think what you think is a plot point that you introduce on the front side of the movie, and then either it's never addressed again, even though they put importance on it in the beginning, or it does come back later, and you find that it wasn't important anyway. It, it was just a sort of a recurring theme, and I I don't know. Well, I think that may have something to do with the fact that this movie uh, suffered for a lot of studio interference. This movie was originally supposed to be like 130 minutes long, and then because of certain elements that were in the movie, and we'll get into those later paramount wanted anderson to take like 30 minutes off of this movie and it's really disappointing because there's some really cool shit that i this movie would have benefited from and it would have made it a more cohesive narrative you know after the fact now the reason paramount wanted the cuts is because i guess in the what would you call it the director's cut Mm -hmm. uh, the mpaa gave it an nc-17 yes wasn't that the reason they wanted it to cut please (laughs) that sounds like the more exciting movie (laughs) Yeah, it, it would have made it different for sure. I wonder if they made the same thing now, would they still give it an, an NC-17? Uh, I mean, I if you look know, at some of like the Hellraiser movies and stuff that have come out, what that they come out rated R. Yeah. So what could have possibly been in it that they gave it an NC-17? Well, again, we'll get into it, but from what I've read, the test screenings that they had originally, people were like passing out and shit. Again, I want to see that movie. Yeah, that's... Give me that one. <laughs> exactly. Like, like, I'm a sucker for that stuff, so... Maybe it would make more sense with that 30 minutes added back in. Well, if we're just referring to the infamous blood orgy scene, then yeah, that would have been some really cool stuff. But there, from what I understand, there was also a lot of character development stuff that we didn't get to get. Like, we got more with the characters and explaining why they take certain actions or behave the way that they do that I think would have just helped this movie a lot more. And it's really disappointing that we didn't get to get it because some studio head was unhappy. Well... I'm sure they were going for an R rating because NC-17 is kind of the kiss of death for a movie. Right, yeah. I think rated R, you can get it into theaters, and NC-17, a lot of theaters won't take those. Right. Well, you have some really great movies out there that are NC-17, but the problem is is when you get those, you don't get as much distribution as you would like. You don't get as much advertising for it, but... 
For me, if a movie's rated NC-17, I don't automatically jump to, oh, well, it must have explicit sex in it, you know? Especially from a horror standpoint, if I know that a movie is going to be NC-17, I'm like, ooh, what are they going to do in this, you know? Well, the MPAA, when they assign a rating, they seem to be fairly subjective. So, I don't know if it matters. It, it, it seems to depend on who's making it and what kind of movie it is, because sometimes it seems like they'll give them a hard rating, and it could be because of gore, it could be because of sex, or maybe it's just because they said fuck too many times. Right. So. I don't feel like they're really consistent in what how they assign those ratings. So there's this documentary, and I watched it actually again here recently, called This Movie Is Not Yet Rated, or This Film Is Not Yet Rated, sorry. And it's really interesting to find out, you know, how many different moving pieces there are to the MPAA, and that most of the time, it's, I mean, I, I hate to use the term Karens, but that's what it really feels like. Like, you get a bunch of religious and conservative types that go in and judge these movies, and I really feel like that's the wrong type of people to view film. So it's almost more like a political organization than... Sort of. It just seems like you need somebody with an unbiased opinion to do Oh, well, good luck with that one. (laughs) Right. I would love to have that job, but they probably wouldn't like me very much because I'd be like, all the blood, all the gore. (laughs) Yeah, and back to the the infamous blood blood orgy scene that I guess they chopped up and made people faint. Mm -hmm. They cut it down so far in the movie that you you have to like be ready to pause to even see what's really going on there. I know. It flashes through that so fast. You're like, yep, it's blood and people. Yeah. And that's it. I mean, you can you can find out like if you do your homework, you can find out explicitly what they cut out of that scene. And I mean, I'm not like sitting here being like, ooh, I want to see some dude get sodomized with a pipe. No. <laughs> but still, there was it was like a practical effects extravaganza. It showed some really cool shit and I just would have liked to have seen more of that. Yeah, it'd be nice. And there has been a rumor floating around, I guess for a lot of years, that they were going to come back with like a director's cut where they mm-hmm. put all that back in. But now this, when it comes to the production and everything, this kind of falls into that category of a cursed movie. Right. Right. Where no matter how much they've tried, like they lost the uh-huh. copies, and then when they finally found it, the, it was it was damaged so, and they couldn't do it. So I had a theory about that whenever whenever I was doing my homework for this, and yeah, basically what had happened was Paul Anderson and this other guy I can't remember his name. They basically went all over the world trying to hunt down this lost footage, and they actually tracked some of it down to a salt mine in Transylvania, which I find really crazy. How like, the hell does the cut footage end up in a salt mine in Transylvania? I know. So my theory is that people were so afraid of this movie that it almost became like, which Indiana Jones movie is it? That they have that giant vault of all those boxes and crates and stuff where they hide the... Oh, it's Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. Yeah, the the Nazi warehouse full of artifacts. So I feel like it's that type of situation where they purposely spread out all of this stuff because it must have just been so evil that putting and making this movie would be like, you know, it'd be like a cursed movie or yeah, something. I, I would watch an uncut version. Oh, I yeah, think. for sure. I don't know. I, there was a time in my life before you <laughs> where movies like that might turn my stomach a little bit, but uh-huh. I think that you've made me sit through enough horror movies now <laughs> that I pretty much watch anything. Well, and I'm, I'm kind of touchy about certain movies where this has specifically happened to. Like, there's been a few Friday the 13th movies where people came down on him so hard that they lost so much cool shit. Like, Friday the 13th Part 7 was pretty much raped. I mean, John Carl Beekler had some really amazing kills and practical effects. And again, because of studio interference, a lot of that shit got cut out. And because 
the footage can't be found or is destroyed, we're never going to be able to have a what that film could have been. There will be no director's okay. cut. Okay, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You think that the, the lost footage for the Friday the 13th that's about a psychic girl <laughs> fighting Jason Voorhees with her psychic powers is going to make it better? Yes. There's no saving that movie. <laughs> Oh, come on. That was Kane Hodder's first one. It's got the sleeping bag kill. That movie's got some merit. No, no, no. I would never criticize a man as large as Kane Hodder. <laughs> <laughs> he's a good Jason. He is. And I, some people don't like him, but I do. But I think the, he's he's like the only high point of that movie for me. I yeah. just don't. I don't care for that one. Well, you know, we get asked in various groups all the time, what's your favorite Friday the thir- 13th kill? And I always say the sleeping bag kill. It's just classic. Yeah, no, I mean, it, that, it's it's got some good stuff in it. But overall, that is definitely not my favorite movie and i do believe that sometimes people blame studio interference for a shit script uh i wouldn't say it's a shit script maybe not this one specifically (laughs) but a lot of times if a movie bombs the box office the first thing the director does is jump up and blame studio interference okay but i think in the case of event horizon that must be absolutely what happened well when you put that together with the original rating was nc-17 and then the studio said cut it yeah 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 that's they there's no you don't cut half an hour out of just surplus i I wouldn't think yeah you're gonna lose some important stuff there because now the the what you call it blood orgy scene Mm -hmm. that's not the whole 30 minutes right right that was they cut a couple minutes out of that so what else did they cut out Where's the other, you know, 26, 27 minutes that wasn't part of that? Right. So, anyway. So, this film stars uh, Lawrence Fishburne as Miller, Sam Neill as Dr. Weir, Kathleen Quinlan as Peters, Jolie Richardson as Stark, not Tony, uh, Richard T. Jones as uh, Cooper, Jack Noseworthy as Justin, Jason Isaacs as DJ, DJ Trauma. DJ Trauma. <laughs> Sean Pertwee as Smith. This is a pretty big ensemble cast. It really is. I mean, you've got Morpheus, you've got Dr. Alan Grant, you've got the chick from Nip Tuck, and you've got Jason Isaacs, who is basically every evil British villain. Well, he's Draco Malfoy's Every evil British. Lucius, that's it. I like Jason Isaacs, though. I'm supposed, to be a, I'm supposed to be a Harry Potter fan here. And Sean Pertwee looked familiar. I didn't bother to look up to see what he was in, but he was familiar. And then Kathleen Quinlan, I knew from the uh, Hills Have Eyes remake, and I think she's done some other, I mean, obviously some other bigger stuff. But I pretty much everybody in here, and Richard, Richard T. Jones, uh, like, horrible example I'm going to give here. But I knew him from the Why Did I Get Married movie, so um, hated him in that movie. But, yeah, pretty much everybody... I I knew from somewhere and I really thought they were good um oh Jack Noseworthy he's also like in Idle Hands he's the guy that blast uh shout at the devil and oh my gosh that's him <laughs> yeah that's him I um, knew that guy looked familiar and I yeah. could not for the life of me place it and uh the Brady Bunch movie but I don't know how well you remember that I've never seen the Brady Bunch movie <laughs> oh my god I'm gonna drop papers because you've seen the Brady Bunch movie <laughs> But anyway, they, um, I thought they were all really great. They played well off of each other. Um, there was good camaraderie off of that cast. And yeah, I loved that everybody had their own personality and things about them that made them differ from the others. Yeah, the, the things that this movie struggles with is not poor performances. Yeah. And I, we'll get into it later, but the way they interact with one another, the way they act the parts, you can buy, I buy it. I buy it for a dollar that they <laughs> that this is a crew that's been together a while. Yeah, and, and of I, course 
And I think I've, I've made mention of this like a, for a couple of podcasts now. I absolutely love Lawrence Fishburne in anything he's in. Like, I don't know that I've seen a movie where he was unlikable or something. He's, he's always a badass, you know? Well, if he's doing Furious Styles or Morpheus. I mean, He's very good at playing an authoritative character. Yes. He, he's good at being the guy in charge. Oh, in Deep Cover. We watched that recently, too. He's, right. He's a great actor. And then, of course, I can't say enough good things about Sam Neill. This is not his first horror movie. Like, he's done horror for the span of decades. And well, he did The Mouth really of Madness. Good. Yeah, and then he did, um, I think it was The Omen Part 3, where he was he was Lucifer. So, the guy has some horror chops. Like, he's he's creepy. He does creepy very, very well. Yeah, I thought he was a creepy paleontologist. <laughs> oh, just because he was talking about that boy getting gutted by oh, a velociraptor. Yeah, and he was hanging out with a couple of little kids. <laughs> Can't trust that guy. No, Tim. <laughs> I don't know. I think my favorite character in this one was Cooper and I don't oh, know yeah. I don't know the actor that played Richard him. Richard T. Jones. Yeah, Cooper. But now Cooper's he was in favorite. a movie with Lawrence Fishburne prior to this one, wasn't he? I think I read that, but I can't remember what movie it was. So, but he was good. He was he's the I don't realize that oh, he's I think the, it was that Tina Turner movie What's Love Got to Do with It. Was he, he was he young Ike Turner and Lawrence Fishburne he, was older Ike Turner or something like that? I think like he that. was his son I or think, something. But yeah, they yeah. were so but anyway, he's the comic relief in this movie, and he's probably my favorite. Yeah, yeah, he's pretty good. Like, he's better than DJ Trauma. <laughs> At some point, we have to explain that. So, without further ado, and now that our mic it's situation is fixed... Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Let's jump aboard the Lewis and Clark, shall we? Here I come, motherfucker! And now it's time for your obligatory spoiler warning. We don't just spoil movies here, they are spoiled rotten, so listen at your own risk or turn back now. Okay, so have you ever had one of those moments where you can't get something to work right, <laughs> and you can't figure out what it is, and then you realize that you've done something dumb, like you didn't plug it in, or you whatever? You, you're referring to our mic issue? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was doing some other recording earlier, and I had it set for one person, and that's the reason you sounded like shit for the first 15 minutes. So we want to thank you guys for being very patient with us and our growing pains, and I mean, because this has been a, a learning experience for us. So if you're if you're still hanging with us after all this time... 10 episodes. No, it's not been 10 episodes yet. This will be number nine. <laughs> Thank you for putting up with uh, our shit. And <laughs> Sorry, hopefully we will get our get our shit together from this point. <laughs> yeah, I'm learning a lot about audio editing and <laughs> And you're this. doing a fine job, baby. I don't know that anyone would agree with you there. <laughs> well, I do, and that's all that matters. So, all right. So the intro, first thing I noticed about this is that you get the, the moving Paramount company logo, right? Where the stars fly in and they mm-hmm. go around. But the background's a little bit different. And then it like the mountain sinks down and you go into space. And that's, I, I don't know. I want to say that that's the first time I saw Paramount do that, but I don't know if that's a fact or not. But I mean, obviously now those those interactive company logos are... Yeah, because uh, I remember them doing that in the South Park movie too, where it transitions yeah. over to animated. Yeah, and those are, it's a normal thing now. But uh-huh. back then, that was not something that you saw very often. So I thought it was kind of... Now, we go straight to credits in space sort of you fly through a wormhole so it's Uh very doctor who yeah minus the cool music (laughs) the music in this one's very intense yeah so who did the music for this um the music was done by michael Kamen and the band orbital which i knew their work from mortal Kombat. they've got some pretty cool stuff now anderson wanted to use orbital just just orbital to do the score for this movie didn't he but the what they wouldn't let him um i don't i don't know i read that i read that somewhere else that 
he had wanted Orbital to do the score for this one, but I guess Paramount didn't want just a techno band or whatever in charge of a movie with this kind of budget, so he had to bring somebody else in. I mean, I, I get it, I guess, but I feel like you've got other movies out there that worked with those type of bands and did just fine. Like, I feel like, have you heard the Mortal Kombat soundtrack? <laughs> well, I was thinking of like Fight Club with the Dust Brothers and stuff. I mean, it's pretty good shit. Like, Well, I think now it's, it's just a lot more common to turn over the reins to a score to bands. Yeah. Basically. It, yeah. it doesn't have to be a classical composer yeah, anymore I mean, or somebody that just Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails did the uh, score for The Social Network. Um, Marilyn Manson has scored movies. Jonathan Davis has scored movies. Didn't Trent Reznor do Lost Highway? Um, I don't think so. It? I think Angelo Badalamente pretty much does all the scores for David Lynch. But, yeah. I mean, there, there's some out there that didn't know, but I guess that wasn't a common thing in 97. So Just for the record, the Mortal Kombat soundtrack is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so, the music's very intense, which is odd, because there's this does not have a score that I hear it and I go, oh yeah, it's that movie. Right. Um, it's not like like you're, I'm not going to use that word. <laughs> Iconic? I, I hate that word. I feel like people throw it around way too much. But it's not an immediately recognizable score. It's not like listening to Halloween or like, yeah, when you Nightmare hear, on Street. You hear those and you immediately know what they are. Candyman that we just did. You hear it, you know exactly what it is. Right. It's as intense and specific to this movie as it is, it does not trigger that. Right. For me at all. So once we get through the credits, we go to your words on screen, <laughs> I guess. They give you, <laughs> they're giving you the background. <laughs> Starting in 2015, first permanent colony established on the moon, which was funny. I don't remember that happening in 2015. Yeah, me either. I am old, though, so I don't remember most things now. Yeah, right. <laughs> So, 2032, commercial mining begins on Mars. Uh, if Elon Musk has it his way, it'll happen way before then. <laughs> 2040, deep space research vessel Event Horizon, launched to explore boundaries of the solar system. She disappears without a trace beyond the eighth planet, Neptune. It is the worst space disaster on record. Really? So, I like, guess, like... The Challenger it? blowing up? I guess none not... of that happened in this timeline. <laughs> So, and then it's 2047 now. So, 2047, that's that's our present. So, I don't know, I could talk a lot about the, the different effects, the visuals that they did in this, and, mm -hmm. and kind of walk through it, and from what I understand, they had spent like a third of their budget on that, right? Yeah, they had an estimated budget of $60 million, and the movie only grossed just over $26 million, so, but you can see where that budget was spent. I mean, it some of this... Special effects and CGI are kind of eh, but I thought a lot of them, particularly the gore, worked very well. For 1997, the visual effects were good. Yeah. The computer-generated shit. Yeah. It's more of the, the blobby shit, like, floating through space that I have an issue with, but there's well, worse out there. When it the entire screen is computer-generated, like the space scenes, it looks really good, but when you have when they have computer-generated imagery in with live action that mm -hmm. we, we see later, yeah, mm -hmm. you can tell. It looks a little shitty. Yeah. <laughs> So we get an asteroid flying toward the camera away from the sun, and it turns to reveal a ringed blue planet swirling with clouds. It's really pretty, actually. Mm -hmm. So you get a spaceship in the foreground, which they said they designed it to look like part of a cathedral, Notre Dame, I think. Mm -hmm. I didn't get any of that. It looked kind of like uh, a spaceship from Star Trek or something, like a Klingon <laughs> bird of prey. 
Well, I happen to love this ship's design, and I liked in particular that it was shaped like a crucifix. I think that was the intention. Maybe not, but that was what I saw. I mean, I guess you could also say it looks like a giant broadsword, maybe, but I I got crucifix out of it, so I thought that was pretty cool, pretty creepy. Yeah, it's an interesting ship design. So we fly around it, and they go inside, and there's debris and shit floating around in there in a long tunnel, and I don't know, there was a lot of criticism. And people nitpicking the shit out of this, like that the the uh, the ship's clearly dead and it's cold, but the water in the water bottle wasn't frozen solid. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. At that point, you're just looking to be a dick about something. Yeah, I'm I'm not really one of those people that nitpicks a movie to death. Like, oh well, technically, yeah. I mean, just just watch the fucking movie. And then a watch comes floating by the screen, <laughs> and it so you can hear the ticking sound. But if you look at it, the the second hand's not moving. Uh-huh. But people were bitching that like, it would have wound down by then because it's a something something. Speedmaster watch and you wind them and they only last for who gives a shit? Yeah. Not just me. watch the movie. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I just so you fly through to another room in the ship, there's a body floating there, and as you continue to zoom in, you see that the body's all like cut up. Not I don't think it's skinless. I didn't see that, but it no, clearly it's... mutilated. Yeah. And then as you zoom in on the face, it screams. And then when it pulls away from that, you're pulling out of Dr. Weir's eye. And this is the point where you realize it was a dream. Dr. Weir was having a dream, or a nightmare, rather. And so all those people who were nitpicking the fact that the water wasn't frozen in that bottle just need to get over it because weird shit happens in dream. So interesting enough, do you know that Bill Pullman was considered for the role of Dr. Weir? How do you feel about that? So 97, that would have been around the time of Lost Highway, I think. So he might have been able to pull it off. I just think that Sam Neill brought something else I don't to know. it. When I when I think of Bill Pullman, I think of two roles. He is either the guy in Lost Highway or he's the president in Independence Day. Or the dad in Casper. <laughs> no. He's just one of those two. <laughs> I don't know. I think Sam Neill's got better creep factor than Bill Paul. Well, I know I used the At word. At least it wasn't Bill Paxton. <laughs> Game over, man. <laughs> I know I use the word gravitas a lot for, there's just something about British actors that that's exactly he's what they have. Oh, he's that's from, right. He's from he's, New Zealand. Yeah. Okay. So let me rephrase that. There's a certain thing about foreign actors and uh, maybe it has something to do with the different backgrounds in theater, but they just bring something else that I don't necessarily think a lot of American actors have. Is that, does that mean? Does that totally mean? I think you get different qualities from actors from different places. Yeah. So we pull away. Dr. Weir, he, he's waking up and he looks over these pictures of a woman. Um, none of them are wedding photos. So you find out later that it's his wife. But at this point, it's just him with some woman. Like it could have been his side piece. Who knows? Girlfriend, fiance, maybe a wife. I don't know. But clearly they still use that sticky tack shit to hold stuff to the wall because you can see it pull away when he takes the photo down he just kind of carries it around and then he lays it down it looks like an altar mm-hmm. to this woman and he says that you know he misses her mm-hmm. obviously so he puts the puts the photo down and you get this sort of odd moment while he's shaving that he notices a faucet drip like he's looking over at a tub and there's a faucet drip and they and they spend a lot of they spend some time on it right and i don't this is one of those things that they stop there and you think so this is a critical point and it's going to come back and it's gonna be really important later kind yeah yes and no but either way and i notice that he's still shaving with a straight razor it's 2047 and you're using a straight (laughs) razor to shave your face don't they have like some kind of laser shaving device (laughs) by 2047 (laughs) i don't know i don't know it's just weird and you see the name on his shirt is uh weird wg but i don't think it ever tells what his actual first name anyway so he he shaves goes up 
to his chin as he's going up there and then you get your first jump scare where these shutters open like very loudly a bang and they roll back Mm -hmm. yeah it's just mini blinds (laughs) and from what i understand uh that was a sound effect taken from the game doom yeah one of the doors yeah when you open the door yeah so it's funny i forgot to mention this at the beginning of how much stuff little easter eggs or inspiration was put into this film um because the story in doom is not totally unsimilar to this yeah and the things that this i mean because this film you know they they say that it's the shining in space i didn't get that so much unless you want to talk about dr weir's descent into madness but other than that i didn't really get the shining from this it was also it's you know it's got elements from the exorcist in it or i think they're getting that the shining thing from the fact that he goes crazy but i mean if you look at the shining jack nicholson was kind of crazy before they got there which i guess you could say that judging from this very first introduction or whatever to dr Rue, that he was getting to crazy like he was mm-hmm. he wasn't there but he was definitely on the road to yeah. crazy before they got there maybe that's kind of like the drive from wherever jack nicholson was up to the overlook yeah like that's the trip he takes from normal to nuts but i don't know but if you're an eagle-eyed movie watcher you'll see stuff from blade runner the exorcist actually i think the exorcist thing was from a deleted scene and then obviously hellraiser i mean this movie's basically hellraiser in space it's what bloodline should have been yeah (laughs) technically and then it inspired stuff that came after it like dead space and doom 3 and you know dead space is creepy as hell <laughs> that, that's like one of those games you have to play outside in the lawn you in play broad that, daylight yeah you play that in the summertime <laughs> during the day with all the lights on it's a creepy ass game so the thing opens the window sh- shutter opens weir's approaching and he's eating breakfast i guess but he's upside down camera's inverted and as it zooms out you see that he is on the massive daylight station which is a i guess a space station and it's in low earth orbit so as we zoom away from the space station you hear an announcement over the intercom that says dr weir report to the lewis and clark in docking bay four and then the screen goes white and when it fades back in you go straight into a flyby of the lewis and clark which is a search and rescue vessel as it flies away from the earth on a top secret mission so top secret they have to put it along the bottom of the screen it's top secret (laughs) so you zoom into the windshield which i didn't know the spaceship needed a windshield i guess they do well you'd think that by 2047 they could fly by instrumentation i don't know (laughs) anyway so inside the cabin the pilot who is smith we'll find that out later is complaining about going to neptune he wants to go to mars because at least there's women there i wrote it down as co-pilot but later you find out she's the xo for the captain uh, stark and she says yeah we're going to be basically on our own if somebody drops the ball we're screwed and captain says you know the rules when something happens happens we got to go so let's go so the crew continues to prepare for the ion drive activation a lot of activity dr weir stops the captain played by lawrence fishburne i always call him the captain i call him captain in all my notes what's his actual name captain miller yeah and something funny here too as far as casting is arnold schwarzenegger was considered for this role could you see that they they, you can't get to a chopper in space I mean, I love Arnold as, you know, we established in our very first episode. And in my mind, he can do anything, but I don't know about this. (laughs) Okay, look, he could have done this, but... (laughs) The ending would have had to be completely different. I don't know. I just think Lawrence Fishburne, he just commanded that role very well. He did. I he can't did see anybody job. else doing that part. But they would have had to do a total rewrite for Arnold to be in it. A total recall? <laughs> Shut up, Ashley. I just, 
know what to say to that. <laughs> so several times, Dr. Weir attempts to speak to Captain Miller, and uh, he just keeps getting cut off. He's like, you know what? We just, we just got to go. We're under the gun. They're in a hurry. So he tells him to get to the, the grav tanks. Get to the chopper? No, the grab tanks. (laughs) Now, it would be interesting to hear Arnold say that, but anyway. Okay, I'll stop, I promise. So, the crew goes, and they get in their pods, basically these, like, stasis pods. It's the same shit you see in Alien. Right, yeah. And that was a struggle I kind of had with this movie, is the Alien came out first. Uh Uh-huh. And I was like, eh. I will say that I I feel Alien all over this movie. If you look at the interior of the ship, of the Lewis and Clark, and even a little bit, once they get on the event horizon, uh-huh. definitely got some alien stuff yeah. going on. Here. And maybe that's just because we recently binge watched all the alien movies. So maybe that was just really fresh it on our minds. Could be, could be. But let's be honest. If the XO Stark, who was played by what Jolie Richardson, Richardson yeah. how much more awesome would that have been if it had been Ripley? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so we go to space, the final frontier, the final frontier, <laughs> and the Lewis and Clark is flying towards two planets, or it could be one planet and a moon. It's not clear. Some interesting visuals. That's it. And the caption at the bottom says that they're 56 days out. So I'm assuming 56 days out from Earth. So you can fly from Earth to Neptune in 56 days if you accelerate. From for 30 G's, according to this, at 30 G's. Weir wakes up when he hears a woman's voice whisper, Billy. So I'm guessing that his first name must be William, and maybe Billy is uh, what she called him. Mm-hmm. Hence, W.G. Weir. Mm-hmm. So, anyway. So he's the only one awake. Gets out of his tank. Here's the voice say that there's, I'm so alone. He says, hello, no one answers. There's a few static shots there, uh, to, just to show you that... There's nothing going on in the ship. He's the only one awake. Um, he says, anyone there? Nobody answers. So he walks by and the door to Cooper's bunk like flies open. Mm-hmm. They got like these like roll up doors on their bunk spaces and get jump scare number two because they just seem to like their jump scares in this movie, which I guess this in 97 is before jump scares were considered uncool. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But Weir proceeds through the ship, goes to the bridge. He sees a woman sitting in a pilot's seat facing away from him. She's facing out the windshield, which if you're in space, you can't call it a windshield. What would you call it? The window? We'll just call it a window. (laughs) Like, it's not a windshield. There's no wind for it to shield you from. If somebody knows, let us know. (laughs) So she's looking out the window. And she, she looks like she's naked sitting there. Like you just see her from the side, but it looks like she's probably not wearing clothes. So he walks up to her. She says, Billy again, but she doesn't turn around. And you can see her reflection in the blank monitor screen. And there's this is so there's eyes at the top of the screen. Yeah. They're not hers. They're not Weir's. And they're not a sticker. Yeah. So you don't know what it is. They yeah. don't look friendly. It's not like you got Elmo eyes up there. <laughs> so like there's... Like Definitely an, a presence there like with something him. malevolent. Yeah. Almost. But there are also Kiwi and Apple stickers stuck around the edges <laughs> of the monitor. I had to pause it because I was like, what the fuck is that? It's uh, the little round and oval shaped like stickers from fruit. So it looks like Isabel's TV. It does. <laughs> so apparently Smith, their pilot, is a big fan of fruit. And he feels like putting his stickers all over his <laughs> monitor. I don't know. So the woman says, Billy, I'm so cold. Which... We'll go ahead and say it. Her name is Claire. I mean, it doesn't really say it until later, but that's who she is. So Weir approaches the chair, turns it around. She's naked. She's got her eyes closed. And he says her name, Claire. So a hand grabs Weir's shoulder, jump scare number three. And we're what, 20 minutes into the movie? Yeah. Like they're going hard on the jump scares. And he turns to see Claire standing behind him. Her eyes are gone. Not like burned out or anything. It's just like they've been removed from their sockets. Like scooped it's just out. red yeah. in there. And she's naked. She says, I'm waiting. Mm, ominous. <laughs> so Weir screams and the shot flashes back and forth between him screaming on the bridge and him beating on the glass of the tank lid of his little pod. And then liquid drains 
The door opens. He falls out, coughing up whatever fluid was in the tank. Guess what? It was another dream. So here we are. Nothing really scary has happened other than this guy dreams a lot. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the ship's doctor, who we'll find out later is DJ, (laughs) comes up and he tells Weird, take it easy. You've been in stasis for 56 days. You're going to experience a little disorientation. So the crew is exiting their tanks, drying off. Captain tells everybody, basically comes and tells everybody, hurry the hell up. Yeah. Comes in, chases them out. So they assemble in the mess hall, and this is where you get your introductions made. They're two hours, 23 minutes out to Neptune. So now we got to find out who everybody is. So you've got Lieutenant Stark. That's Jolie Richardson, right? She's mm-hmm. the XO. So that's she's the second command mm-hmm. to uh, Miller. Justin, also known as Baby Bear. Mm-hmm. He is, he's an en- their engineering guy. Cooper is their rescue technician. He's the funny guy. Peters is their medical technician. And you see there's like while they're kind of going through the stuff, she's watching a thing on like a tablet. She's got her iPad. <laughs> <laughs> iPad's in space. Uh, but she has a son who's in a wheelchair and she missed his birthday. Mm-hmm. So to go on this. And Smith is the pilot and he likes kiwis and apples and then you get dj trauma so it's just funny as they go around and he's saying their names and this is how we got to dj trauma he says their names and what do you do right well he goes dj he says dj and he immediately turns around and says trauma so it almost comes out as one name i can't make that sound i don't know what you were doing dj trauma please stop So Cooper wants to know why they're out here at the ass end of space, and Weir is invited to explain. So Weir begins this long intro about how happy he is to be there, and Captain Miller's like, just shut the hell up and tell us what's going on. We don't want to be here. Because they were on leave. They had mm-hmm. just gotten pulled out. They just got back from another mission and gotten pulled off of leave to go here. Mm-hmm. So he's like, just shut up and tell us. Like, hurry up. And you find out that Peter's, like, technically she was supposed to have custody of her son at this time. I'm guessing there's a divorce situation. And Miller apologizes to her saying, you know, I wish that we could have given your shift to somebody else. But unfortunately, there just wasn't enough time because we're, they're basically in such a hurry to get this done. And she says, you know, it's okay the dad's gonna keep him and so they've worked out an arrangement but you can tell they set it up that she obviously feels a certain amount of guilt for not being with her son so and i think that guilt is important because we'll come back around to that later mm-hmm. so yeah you can definitely feel the interpersonal connections between the characters watching them when they're interacting with one another when they're getting out of the grav tanks this one right here right this is a crew that served together for a while and they set miller up almost like he's a hard ass like he's kind of cranky and stuff but then just having this conversation with peters you can tell he's really not a hard ass. He obviously cares a lot about his crew. and Well, he may be a hard ass, but he still cares for his people. Mm-hmm. And they know that because they don't take him being a hard ass and yelling at everybody to heart. You know what right. I mean? Mm-hmm. He's, he runs through screaming at everybody, telling them to hurry up, but none of them get their feelings hurt or take it personally. Right. So this is clearly something that he does all the time, I mm-hmm. guess. And oddly enough, in some of that deleted footage, there was supposed to be some kind of implied romance set up between Miller and dj trauma no <laughs> julie richards uh, stark stark yes it was supposed to be yeah this um romantic thing set up between miller and stark oh, and Hooking it, up i feel like man that's inappropriate i feel like if you look at it close enough you can see where that foundation was laid a little bit like they they seem like they have a little bit more of a personal relationship between them as he than he does with the rest of the crew. But at the same time, he's harder on her than he is anybody else. Right. Which might explain that too. Right. It's all for show. Yeah. Because really... Because I know you're harder on me than anybody else. <laughs> he's he's hitting that, right? So he's got to make a good show uh, for the crew. 
I don't, I don't, they obviously left that out, but you can just see that the, the bones were there. Yeah. So, and this is where Miller says, you know, the last time they sent us a, or attempted a rescue, he doesn't say sent us, he says they attempted a rescue beyond the outer reach. I don't know what that means. It means something to them, means nothing to me. Both ships were lost. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, later we're going to find out that he was involved in a rescue mission that went wrong, mm-hmm. and, but it never ties those two together. Maybe that was part of the missing footage or whatever. But anyway, Weir goes on to explain that they intercepted radio transmission from a decaying orbit around Neptune and that it came from the Event Horizon. He then goes on to explain that the Event Horizon was part of a top secret project to create an FTL spacecraft. And the crew is like, FTL can't happen. The Event Horizon exploded. Well, and, and as he was soon like, as... no, that's just what the news told everybody. This is what really happened. And as soon as the crew hears Event Horizon, they all get pissed off too because they're like, we, we had to lose our, our leave for this? Like... Well, I think probably to them, and this is just me uh, thinking out loud, sort of, I'm inferring something that maybe wasn't there. It, it, to them, it's, it's like they reacted the way they would think it was a wild goose chase. Right. Like, this is just some bullshit you hauled us out here for? There's no way it's the event horizon. Yeah. So that automatically sends up, or sets up some tension between the crew and Dr. Weir. Right. So Weir is invited to explain exactly how the event horizon works. And he starts going into some technical stuff. People don't really get it. And he says, put it in layman's terms. And then he's like, no, do you, Cooper? Ask him, do you speak English? <laughs> <laughs> so he grabs a poster off the wall and it happens to belong to Smith. And he was like, that's mine. And uh, Vanessa. That, that, that's Vanessa. Yeah. <laughs> And he uses a pen and he's talking about how the the gravity drive folds space-time and then he stuffs the pen through the poster. Smith is not his biggest fan now because he just ruined his Bikini Girl poster. (laughs) And then he tells how, you know, the event horizon sort of disappeared. Basically, it worked. Mm -hmm. And it went somewhere for seven years and now it's back. So he then decides to share the last transmission, which is a human voice. And you can't really understand what it says, but DJ Trauma says, hang on. And he replays it and he translates he says it's Latin, and it translates into save me, or that's how he interprets it. So they dock with the event horizon and scans, starts running scans, and Lawrence Fishburne, what's his name, Miller, is being impatient. He's a very impatient guy. Mm-hmm. He pushes her really hard. But she <clears> says <throat> that scans are picking up trace life forms all over the ship. So Miller, Justin, and Peters uh, suit up to enter the ship. And interesting stuff about these suits. They were god-awful heavy, apparently. Mm-hmm. And I guess they couldn't sit down while they were wearing them, and they hurt everybody's backs. <laughs> So they had to build some kind of special thing so that they could sit down or lean or whatever. But the, apparently the suits were awful. And they've got flags on them that nobody recognizes. What was the deal with that? So they the flags, they showed like a hypothetical future political changes on Earth. So they were modified. Like certain flags had a certain amount of stars on them. Sam Neill had his Australian flag, like took the Union Jack off. Uh, Jack off. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, they were modified to insinuate that something big happens in the future. So Miller, <clears throat> Justin, and Peters get their suits on and they enter the ship. And the first thing they see when they get into the central corridor is explosives in there that are attached. And they're like, we just kind of move on from there. So Justin is headed to go check out engineering, headed towards the reactor. Peters goes to the bridge. She sees some blood. She finds a body that's totally frozen that looks like it's floating around in there because there's no gravity. They're using their magnetic boots to move around the ship without floating all over the place. And DJ sees it, and he says it looks like it was attacked by an animal. Mm-hmm. He said decompression doesn't do that. So questions. But Justin goes into the reactor chamber, which is where the 
gravity drive is and powers it up. So this is when we lose signal with Justin. Mm -hmm. This is the first like really creepy thing that happens here. That mm -hmm. As soon as it powers up, all his transmissions get cut off. And then the gravity drive goes active and a black pool forms where this big rotating ball is. So we need to spend a minute with this gravity drive, right? So this one actually, the design for it was specifically intended to look like something from Hellraiser, right? I don't know about, oh, you're talking about the spinning ball thing? Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to, to touch on something real quick too. And again, in our cut footage, if we had gotten more of the character stuff we were originally supposed to have, Justin's character was apparently fascinated with the event horizon and um, yeah, basically obsessed with it. And so this is kind of why it, it gives some explanation as why Justin is curious about this thing and wants to look at it, you know, um, which I thought was interesting. Had they left that in, then, you know, we might have understood a little bit why he was curious. Well, it would help us understand why he does what he does next. <laughs> yeah, but to answer your question, they actually consulted with Clive Barker in pre-production, which I didn't know. So that would explain, I guess, a little bit why you get such Clive Barker vibes off of this movie. The core is obviously inspired by the Lament configuration. Some of the makeup work, particularly with Sam Neill at the end of the movie... I mean, he all but looks like a Cenobite, you know? I remember the first time, I think it was last year was the first time I watched this movie, thinking like, wow, this came like straight out of Hellraiser. And then, of course, following up and doing research for this, apparently that's everybody's <laughs> consensus, so it wasn't just me. Yeah. So this gravity drive, just to kind of describe it, it's a big ball with, I don't know, I wouldn't call them like a geometric pattern, but it's mm -hmm. a big, big ball mm -hmm. with three rotating rings around, like a gyroscope. Mm -hmm. And every so many revolutions, they all all line up mm -hmm. and it forms like Saturn's Did rings of a spikes sort on them too it. or something it does and I read somewhere what those were they were like transformers or insulators that they used to look like bolts mm -hmm. or something like that but yeah it's, it's a repeating pattern of this mechanical looking stuff all over the outside of the ball <laughs> but when it goes active the ball sort of disappears and it's this big black puddle sort of vertically like a portal in the middle of the rings and of course Justin in this if they'd left the cut footage in this would explain why he feels like he needs to touch it because if I'm looking at a big metal ball with spinning rings around it and all of a sudden it turns into a black like oil slick in the middle the last thing I'm going to think is I should stick my hand in there. <laughs> poke it with a stick that old trope. <laughs> yeah. So baby bear decides to poke the bear and sticks his hand in there <laughs> and guess what? Something on the other side grabs him. Yeah he Patrick Swayze's through that thing <laughs> yeah he has just enough time to go oh shit and there he goes he pulls him in and this is something that i thought was kind of crazy he had a cable on him three people went in right mm -hmm. justin peters and miller mm -hmm. justin was the only one with a cable on yeah why i don't know why was he the only one that had a, a tether because he was the one who was gonna go in there <laughs> because baby bear was gonna do something dumb <laughs> like did they just need an excuse to be able to bring him back yeah i don't know so anyway he gets pulled in and this is like the, for the whole first part of the movie you're like what is cooper's function on the ship right mm -hmm. like when they do the introductions they say he's a rescue technician but for the most part it seems like okay this guy is just around to tell dirty jokes and offer to sleep with women <laughs> And give people coffee. And it seems like that was Cooper's whole function up until now. Because this is where you see Cooper actually get serious. And he's like, I'm on it. And he like books it through the ship. It took him half the time to get to the engineering that it took everybody else just to, you know, go halfway through it. So as he goes in, Justin's coming out, right? He's like pulling on the cable and Justin comes out, he catches him. And a shockwave goes through the ship, damages the Lewis and Clark, breaches the hull, knocks shit everywhere, knocks everybody down. And because of this hull breach, they're 
unending atmosphere and the crew has to abandon the Lewis and Clark and all board the Aventas. So once everybody's on board, we're, we're obviously, he feels like he's right at home now, but Peters is, is on the bridge, turns on the gravity, the body falls and shatters. They get the heat turned on, they get the atmosphere turned on, all this stuff so they can take their suits off and the lights come on, the event horizon, because they weren't on when they pulled up. Even though it said the reactor was hot, it was powered down, I guess, when they were pulling up. Remember, because Stark says that the reactor's hot, but I don't know. So apparently they just didn't, they needed a flipper breaker, I guess, either way. So on the bridge, they find out that there's no comps. Now, whether or not that has something to do with the fact that they decided to attach the Lewis and Clark to the outside of the event horizon by clamping onto its antenna, we don't know. But either way, they have no way to communicate with anyone else. Outside, we see that Smith is walking around with his spacesuit on, surveying the damage on the uh, Lewis and Clark. And the whole bridge is huge. Like, it's this giant gash down the side of the ship. The captain and Weir are back inside, and Miller's asking him what happened here. Of course, he doesn't know. Justin is in a coma after having been pulled out. Mm-hmm. I say coma. He's un- he's catatonic almost. Yeah. His eyes are open. Yeah. Lethargic. And Coop tells the captain about the core. He tells him about what he sees, about how it was just liquid. And Weir's arguing with him, telling it couldn't happen. So they there's like a whole interaction there. And I really wish Miller would just let Cooper beat his ass. Well, because he really wanted to. Because Weir wanted to go onto the ship at the beginning. And he felt like he needed to be with everybody basically investigating. And Cooper would not let him on the ship. No, wasn't Cooper. It was Miller. Miller, 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 Miller sorry. Down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Morpheus said, anyway. <laughs> so they have this whole argument between Weir and Cooper about what Cooper saw. Mm-hmm. And Weir's trying to play it off like Cooper was hallucinating. It was right. the gravity waves distorting it. But gaslighting again, him. Again, Miller backs his people up. And he was like, mm-hmm. look, Cooper says he saw something. I believe he saw something. Right. Now you need to give me an explanation. Mm-hmm. And of course, Weir doesn't have one. So now it's time for a field trip. Miller, Stark, and Weir take a little trip on their favorite rocket ship. <laughs> <laughs> they go to the, I don't know what you, the, the core chamber where the, the gravity drive is. And basically they want Weir to explain what the hell it is. And he's like, oh, it's very technical. You wouldn't understand. Because he's he's very arrogant through this whole first piece. Don't you think? Like his his arrogance, he, he clearly knows or thinks that he's the smartest person in the room. Right. And doesn't really owe them an explanation for anything. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the impression I get. They're the grunts. Way, the way Sam Neill plays it is yeah. that. I don't have to explain this to you. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Arrogant. Yeah. Arrogant is the word yeah. that I have. Just that, do your job. That just keeps coming to my yeah. mind. That I don't know. Which science is arrogant sometimes. <laughs> it, it can be. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I've watched a lot of Discovery show on that <laughs> super collider. It's scary stuff. Anyway. So this is when Weir reveals that inside the core is a black hole. They have a tiny black hole inside this thing, inside a spaceship in space. And these three <laughs> gravity rings are supposed to be the thing that contains it. This does not make Miller and Stark feel better about their situation Mm -hmm. because Stark even points it out. This is the most destructive thing in the known universe and you have it in your ship. So seems dumb, but yeah, there it is. So Miller orders the room sealed off and Weir does not agree with that at all. He keeps telling him it's perfectly safe. And clearly everything up to this point has demonstrated that there's nothing could possibly go wrong with having a black hole contained by magnet rings inside a spaceship, right? So we move to Peter. She's with Justin in the medical bay and she's looking, trying to look through the ship's log because they've been having a hard time getting it in the video to clear up and she hears a noise. So she calls for DJ and he comes back and says he's on deck four. He's not even in medical. So she continues to hear noises and she grabs his saw, like a bone saw. I'm guessing it is. I don't know medical tools. So it's like a hand mm-hmm. saw and she goes to check it out. Like, why don't they have guns? I don't know. Like it's, they're but in, they're bone in space saw they is don't ready. <laughs> Like, they don't have, I don't know, laser rifles, Star Trek phasers, <laughs> something. Like, burn it. Where you're only talking about, what, 30, 40, 20 years from now? So... 
Okay, but they, according to this timeline, they put a colony on the moon. True, true enough. In 2015. Yeah. They need to have some, like, space guns by now. <laughs> anyway. Pazers. So, as she moves through medical, she sees this green, looks like an oxygen tent, sort of, and you can't see through it. But someone's in there moving around, or something is in there moving around. She goes over, pulls it back, and it reveals her son. And his legs are all tore up, mm-hmm. like festering wounds. It's pretty gross. Yeah, and in the deleted footage, they were supposed to be crawling with maggots and stuff. So, I don't know why they would need to cut that out. I mean, honestly, it's pretty gross grotesque as it is. I would think if anything it would help to make things more uncomfortable, unsettling. Yeah. So, But it's very disturbing for Peters. So the thing is we don't know if that was something that really happened and she's having like a flashback to something that happened or if this is something different. Mm-hmm. Some kind of hallucination. But we already know that the, her child was in a wheelchair anyway. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so this is when DJ pops in and scares the hell out of Peters. So this is like jump scare number 12. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. This That's all this movie is, is jump scares. So Peters is showing the ship's log to Miller Weir and DJ, and the video's kind of scrambled up at the end. Like, you could tell that it's different from what they just watched, which was the crew going around introducing themselves, and this last scrambled bit. She's going to run it through some filters and work it out. So, Miller and Weir go to investigate an issue in the core, because it seemed like it came online or something. The gravity drive came online, and DJ finds Justin convulsing. He's like flopping like a fish on that table, and he says, Justin says, they're coming. He's like, who's coming? He says, the dark. Spooky. The dark is coming. So, back in the the gravity drive chamber ball thing, Weir and Miller are there, and Weir has this idea of what it could be, so he lifts up this hatch, and he crawls in this green tunnel. I don't know. It's like something out of, what was it, movie Cube? Mm -hmm. Right? They're crawling through the square tunnels or whatever. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what it looks like, except it's all backlit and green. And he finds a panel, takes it apart, he's looking at it, and then he hears his wife start talking to him. The lights start to pulse off and on. His flashlight starts to kind of go out, and then she appears to him, and she says, be with me forever. And then he snaps out of it. At the same time that this is happening, Cap sees his old crew member, Miller sees his old crew member, rise from the water that is surrounding the gravity drive. You keep saying Cap and automatically keep thinking Captain America. I was trying to take notes really fast, and so instead of writing out Captain or Miller every time, I just wrote down Cap. So just to be clear, Captain America is not aboard the Event Horizon. Keep waiting, like he's going to pop out of corridor somewhere and like, where's Bucky? This would have been a totally different movie. Like, everybody would have made it home. But anyway, so yeah, Miller sees his crew member, former crew member, come out, which we, we don't find out that it's a former crew member until later. Right. You see this guy come up out of the water. He's like covered on fire, in flames. Yeah. And he can feel the heat. That's mm-hmm. the thing. So back on the bridge, the I think the whole crew's there. It's everybody except for what Smith and Peters tells Miller what she saw. And even Miller is like, I felt the heat off of that fire. It was real. Mm-hmm. This wasn't a hallucination. And Weir denies all of it. So no, Smith was there. Now, Smith hasn't seen anything. Mm-hmm. He hasn't had any hallucinations. He hasn't had any anything. And at this point, we've got no backstory on him to indicate that there's anything that he feels guilty about. Right. And guilt is a thing that I think plays a part in this movie. Mm-hmm. But It's either guilt or their own personal fears. Well, I don't think so. And here's why. I heard the, the fears theory thrown out there at time. All of them would have been afraid of something. Mm-hmm. But nothing appeared to Smith. And apparently, he all he wants is the women on Mars. DJ, you know, there's I no backstory know, there that I do know that, DJs, but it's because... Uh, again, the stuff that was cut out. Apparently. Well, because you do see that he's got a scar yes. on his chest. Like, 
like he had open heart surgery. Uh huh. And apparently, according to what I read in IMDb, apparently he has this fear of being operated on or something like that. To what end, I don't know. But yeah, it's not something that the movie just goes out and, and says. See, it comes it comes up later in spoilers, DJ's death, but how he's killed. But it again, again, my bitch, if they had just left that in there, then that death would have had more weight. It would have meant something at that yeah. point. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and that's kind of, okay, so I'll just go into the whole guilt thing. Like, clearly, Miller felt guilty about losing a crew member, and that's why it keeps coming back after him. Mm-hmm. You get the impression that Peters feels some measure of guilt for the condition that her son's in, and that's the reason that keeps coming back to her. But those are the only two that really have visions other than Weir, and Weir keeps having visions of his wife, which we later find out that she committed suicide, and clearly he has guilt over that. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So all of them have something that they regret, and those seem to be the things that come back and haunt them. So if there's other stuff there, then it would make sense that that be included in the movie. But again, if they went through and decided they needed to cut all that out because it wasn't important, I got news for me, it was important. Yes, absolutely. this is one of those things where going back and watching it a couple more times and really paying attention and taking notes, you find those holes that it's just, it doesn't make sense or it doesn't ex- explain itself. They never tie it off. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it would be nice to have all that cut footage back in there. But anyway, back to the story. So this is where Smith goes after Weir because he's tired of Weir's bullshit, Mm -hmm. basically. Weir has been an arrogant dick the whole time and basically doesn't feel like he owes them an explanation to anything. And this is where you get the first kind of, I don't know, emotion out of DJ because DJ grabs Smith to hold him back and you think, okay, he's just helping. He's going to keep him from beating up Dr. Alan Grant. But then he puts a scalpel to his throat like he's fixing to stab him. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't seem to realize that he's doing it, you know? Mm-hmm. Because when he realizes it, he, he just like suddenly lets him go and drops the scalpel. Like he doesn't know how he got from A to B right. anymore. Anyway, so Miller sends Smith out with Cooper to go repair the Lewis and Clark. Um, and then we're just moving through the ship. Miller's moving through the ship and Stark comes up to him and she starts telling him what she's found out about the event horizon. And basically the captain blows her off. She's like, it seems like an immune system and that's the reason I'm getting life readings, but nothing specific. I can't pinpoint any of it. The ship's alive. That's what she tries to tell him. He was like, I just want to get off the ship, which that's fair. I would want to get off of there too. Yeah, no kidding. But he, he doesn't give her, I don't know. He, does, he doesn't believe it, I guess, or doesn't care. He just kind of blows it off, mm-hmm. really. So Peters is back with Justin in medical because everything bad happens to Peter so far has happened there. Why would <laughs> she go back and again she hears a noise so she's she's kind of like pacing back and forth and then when it comes back around to the bed that justin was laying on he's gone just disappeared so then there's banging the lights start to go out and there's a continued banging on a door it's got like a biohazard sticker on it and you just really get a close-up of peters and the terror that's on her face and again good acting i think she she was paralyzed mm-hmm. looked like so with fear and then behind her there's an explosion and some sparks or maybe rather an explosion of sparks because it's no not like a big fireball peter runs uh, or Peter's runs. Uh, she goes up to the the bridge where she's up there with Weir and DJ and Stark and banging starts on the door there too. Banging hard enough that it puts dents in that solid steel door. And then Weir's like, gotta open it. And at this point, you're, he's not, he almost seems possessed or in a trance when he says that. Gotta open the door. Mm-hmm. He's zoned out. Stark stops <clears> him <throat> and the banging stops but then the airlock alarm. So they all run down there. Justin's in the airlock and he has engaged the override so they can't open the door from the outside. He's basically gonna space himself. So he turns, Peter's talking to him he's calling she's calling him baby bear so mm-hmm. there's part of that you know there's some affection there i guess not yeah, romantic she, she kind of has this unspoken thing that she's probably the mom or the motherly well, they, figure they call of the her, ship they call her mama bear 
Yeah. So there's clearly affection there, not in a romantic way, but right. mm-hmm. they care about what happens to each other. Right. So, but he says, I won't go back there. You don't, if you'd know, if you knew what it I've seen, you wouldn't want to go either. So she's like, push the button, push the button. He reaches over there. You think he's going to push the button, open the door and he pushes the other one to open the airlock. So there's a 30 second countdown. They're screaming to Miller. Miller's outside examining the repairs to the ship. And he's like, I'm coming. So he's like, I don't know, doing space parkour <laughs> with his gravity boots and his big space suit. And this siren goes off inside the airlock, and it seems to snap Justin out of this trance that he was in. And now it's totally reversed. He's begging him to let me out. Please let me out. Please open the door. They're telling him mm-hmm. they can't. He's on the, the, the Miller can hear him, and he's saying, make him open the door. He's panicking. And I don't, I don't know, maybe that was some of that lost footage. But I don't know. It's like two different people. This mm-hmm. is almost like two different personalities here. Mm-hmm. And it makes me wonder, was one of those the ship? And one of them was Justin. Yeah, I don't know. The I one didn't that made him read anything in, about that. The one that walked in there made him push the airlock to space himself. Mm-hmm. Was that really Justin trying to kill himself to get away from what he'd seen? Or was that the ship making him do that? Or, the other way around, was Justin trying to escape? And when he's begging, please, please, please let me out, was that the ship? Mm-hmm. Because until you brought up the thing with DJ, I thought, so it plays off their guilt. Mm-hmm. And at that point, who wouldn't feel guilty about not opening the door when he spaces himself? Right. Go either way. But it does seem like almost two different. Right. There, when he He's talking. But they can't get the door open and he gets blown out the airlock. But Morpheus arrives just in time. Sorry, Miller arrives just in time. (laughs) (laughs) He arrives just in time, jumps across, grabs him, they go back in, and he saves him. He's not dead. I would say that the effects on uh, that they did on Justin were good, but the blood CGI was not good. It, it wasn't. Um, the, the effect on his arms when the airlock door first starts to open where all his veins stand out mm-hmm. is neat. I've never seen that before. Oh, yeah. That was the thing they did a lot. Like, as soon as they figured out how to do it, a lot of movies did that. You remember that movie uh, Beast Within where that, uh, that guy was like half locusts or whatever? So they call that a bladder effect. And basically what they do is they run tubes over the actor's skin and then I guess they put latex or skin-like stuff over it and then somebody blows into it and it basically gives the look of you know your skin bubbling or veins getting bigger or um in beast within's case the guy's head was just like bulbing you know it's hard to explain unless you've seen that movie but yeah apparently once everybody found out about the bladder effect everybody and their mom were using it so but in this case it's really effective because it really does look like his veins are just like popping out of his skin yeah it looks really good um, most of the, the practical effects in this are really good. Mm-hmm. But the CG blood in space was not good. <laughs> I just, it just, it wasn't good. So they, they get him back in and they go basically throw him in a stasis tank because they can't fix him there. So now we've got most of the crew kind of in a hallway area and they're sort of discussing what was going on, what happened, what's what's going on with the ship. And Weir just makes some excuses and walks off. So Miller follows him. Don't walk away from me. He chases him down. And he's, he wants to know, where does this gateway go? And Weir keeps telling him, I don't know. And and that's pretty much the end of that conversation. He doesn't know. He chases him down and asks him a few times. And, you know, Weir has no clue, basically, where he sent the ship. So, Cap Miller is sitting... <laughs> sorry. Miller is sitting there with DJ, and he's telling him the story because he keeps having, like, these flashbacks to this crew member that he lost. And he says, I never told anybody what happened. He said, the ship knows. I don't know how it knows, but it knows. And then it's DJ's turn for show and tell. And he says, you know, I've translated the rest of the message. And he plays it back. And in Latin, it says, save yourself from hell. Mm-hmm. So, who knows where the ship's been or what it brought back true statement so we're outside again cooper's out there fixing up the lewis and clark and he's like it's done so they start to pressure it up and he's like well it's still venting trace gases give me 20 minutes no worries cooper's got this under control peters and stark are on the bridge she's still working on the ship's log and this is where you get to 
see the torture scene or the blood. Mm-hmm. Sort of. You don't really get to see it. I think they cut out right. so much of it that it's just, yeah, it's just some blood and people and then it's over. Yeah, it's very quick cuts. And she, uh, Peters drops her coffee cup. She's like, oh my God. But, but yeah, that's one of those things where I was watching. I'm like, but, but stop, stop. I want to see. I want to see. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like if you're going to see what they actually did, you'd have to like pause it and go frame by frame or yeah. something. Yeah. But, this is what I paid money for. <laughs> <laughs> I paid for Hellraiser in Space by George. I want to see Hellraiser in Space. But so now you got Miller and DJ, and they're up there reviewing the log, and they've decided we have to get the hell off this ship. And Weir tells them you can't leave. She won't let you. So Peters and Smith are supposed to be going to get in the scrubbers and to, for the oxygen scrubbers to move them back over the Lewis and Clark because they're running out of oxygen after the atmosphere after the breach. The Lewis and Clark didn't have enough atmosphere, and there's not enough air on the Lewis and or on the event horizon to keep them all going until they get back home. So they're going to take all the CO2 scrubbers off the event horizon over to the Lewis and Clark and hopefully they'll have enough oxygen that when they're in their stasis pods or whatever they'll be able to make it home. That's the that's the idea. So Weir continues to argue with Miller about leaving the event horizon. He's like you can't leave whatever and this is where Miller tells him well then you can walk home. But Weir says, I am home. And like backs away into dark, you spooky. <laughs> so while they're gathering gathering up of these scrubbers, you get Smith and uh, Peters and Smitty. They call him, his name's Smith. They call him Smitty. He's like, all right, let's go. So he's carrying his load of scrubbers and she's right behind him. And for some reason, she turns around. I didn't pick up like a noise when we were watching the video that she heard something. But for whatever reason, she kind of freezes and turns around, drops all her shit. She sees her son. Mm-hmm. So she kind of chases him through some passageways and up a ladder. And then she sees him like at the end of, it looks like a hallway, but it never shows the floor so she's walking towards him and there's a hole and she falls down into basically into the the gravity drive and lands on one of the catwalks and she's dead so then weir comes in finds peters and when you see the body her eyes are black Mm -hmm. and it doesn't mean anything because it's the first time we've ever seen it right but then he has a vision of claire's suicide so the assumption that we take from this is that he was busy working on the event horizon all time she got depressed and killed herself in a bathtub with a straight razor Mm -hmm. which explains why every time up to this point that we've seen her she's been looks like she's wet all right hair's wet and all that stuff and naked because she got I guess she got in a tub to kill herself naked mm-hmm. so I, I don't so is that possibly why he was using the straight razor at the beginning of the film see the straight razor that he uses has got like some filigree or something on it and I, or hers does but you can't tell if it's the same one mm-hmm. so maybe he was shaving his face with the same one she used to kill her. which would be fucked up that would be really weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be too much. So we're back aboard the Lewis and Clark, and Smith catches Weir leaving the Lewis and Clark. So he calls Miller, and Miller looks down while he's talking to Smith and sees, because he's in that main hallway or the main tunnel or whatever, and he sees that one of the explosives is missing. He tells Smith to get out. Well, instead of getting out, Smith goes searching through shit. Like, I don't know why he wouldn't just get out, but he's, he does. He's looking for the bomb. Well, he finds it. When he finds it, it's only got five seconds left. And the expression on the actor's face when he pops that thing open, and sees the deal. like, he's got four seconds left. I think it's pretty good. He's just like, well, damn it. <laughs> anyway, so the Lewis and Clark explodes. Unfortunately, Cooper is still on the outside of the hull and he gets launched away from the ship. So he uses his rescue technician skills, I guess, I don't know, to vent his entire air supply and fly back to the ship. I don't know. I don't know if that would work. But anyway, so Weir goes on to kill DJ. The captain, a Miller, had called DJ and he was like, hey, basically Weir's gone rogue. You need to watch yourself. And DJ picks up a He's like, I'll get him. But Weir kills him. He actually kind of slaps him around a little bit, throws him on a table. And then it's implied that he starts taking these surgical tools to him. Right. And then... So for Jason Isaac's death scene, it was originally planned for his entrails to still be attached to him as he hung over them. 
Isaac's was supposed to be showing, like, he was supposed to have raised his hand showing he was still alive, prompting Miller to put him out of his misery. I don't know why I had this in my head before rewatching it, that it was like, what do you call that, a blood eagle? with the Where the lungs are. Yeah. I don't know why I always thought it was that, but yeah. But still a really cool death scene. It is. The visuals are amazing. He has hung, when Miller finds him, he's hung him up through hooks mm-hmm. in, the, in the, the skin on his back. Mm-hmm. And he's hanging up the table and all of his guts, I guess, have been removed and they're laying on the table under him. So. Mm-hmm. Again, very... Very uh, hellraiser <laughs> It's a very striking image. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Miller goes and he grabs one of the hull repair tools, which is like a bolt gun that they use for repairing whatever, hull breaches. And he goes looking for Weir. He finds Stark unconscious on the bridge, wakes her up. It looks away for just a second when he looks back. His little bolt gun is gone. And then Weir rotates around in the captain's chair. He's got the gun. He's like, his face is all jacked up. Like he scratched his own eyes out. And Miller even points it out. He's like, what happened to your eyes? And he says, where we're going, you don't need eyes to see. Where we're going, we don't need roads. And he goes on to explain where the ship went. Um, not hell, but a place that's worse than that. A, a dimension of pure chaos. And that when the ship came back, the event horizon was alive, which explains the trace life sources that Stark was finding on her scans, <coughs> right. but never could nail it down because it was the whole ship. So Weir begins the activation of the gravity drive. He's going to take them all there. And you see Coop flying up from outside the window, and he's like, I'm back. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. This part's just kind of like he comes up and he's like, hey, hey. <laughs> And bangs up against the window on the front of the ship. So Weir just shoots through the window with this bolt gun. And it begins to decompress. Like explosive decompression. Which blows Cooper away from the ship again. Mm-hmm. Or should have. And this part I had trouble with. So when the, the de- it decompresses and it starts pulling the air out through this the front window of the ship. It rips the chair that is bolted to the deck that Weir was sitting in. Rips it off the floor. Right? Mm-hmm. But Weir is able to grab a hold of the floor panels. Which are made of uh, some kind of metal. Mm-hmm. And he's holding on to him tight if it's actually peeling the metal up. So it can break the bolts off, but he can somehow just hang on with his hand. I don't know. And hang on tight enough that it actually bends the metal panel up before he lets go. I don't buy it. Anyway, so it's blowing all the air out. And Miller manages to grab this cable. And again, it can rip his chair off the deck, but he can like hand over hand pull himself up to cable to safety. (laughs) So he gets out before the door shuts. He manages to rescue Stark. And they're like, all right, so we're getting the hell out of here. We're going to blow the ship, basically. We're going to uh, sever the the central corridor, use the front part of the ship as a lifeboat, and let the back Mm -hmm. end go wherever the back end goes. So then you hear the airlock alarm go off again. Mm -hmm. So they grab tools, which, okay, this was funny. In the little tool board or whatever. They have all these options. And it looked like uh, Stark grabbed like a, an axe or a hammer or something. And in there you can see a Halligan tool. Mm-hmm. Right? It's got like a, a chisel on one end and a crowbar on the other end. And I don't know. But Miller grabs bolt cutters. Like there was a purpose made weapon right there. But he grabbed the bolt cutters. Poor choice. <laughs> Poor choice. Anyway. So over there they're ready to attack and it's Cooper. He's like don't hit me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when it comes falling in through the airlock. <laughs> and they're like okay. So you go to this you go to this you go to this. You know. Miller gives them all duties. Mm-hmm. Um, he's going to go set the explosives in the corridor or arm the explosives. So he goes to do that. You see Cooper. I don't know what he's doing. I didn't. I missed that part is where he was supposed to go. But you get some blood dripping on his hand. He looks up and there's blood filling like the overhead lighting panels, mm-hmm. I guess. And he's like, oh shit. So he starts heading back. And then we see Stark in this big tank where she was 
prepping the pods, and I guess it was the tank fluid in that big central chamber, fills with blood, and then it explodes and washes her away. And that's the part where they get the Shining ripoff. No, it was the Exorcist, and it would have been so cool if they left it back in, is that Weir's body is supposed to, like, spider walk down these this ladder or whatever kind of like the spider walk that reagan did on the yeah, director's the cut yeah that would have been really cool yeah but i always took the blood tank thing you know because it, it, it bursts and the blood oh, like wave. uh the elevator yeah it's the the elevator from the shining uh-huh. but it washes stark away cooper grabs her and they head to the lewis and clark so miller gets everything armed he gets the detonator out of this little box that pops open after you arm the last one and he has another vision of this crew member i say it's a vision at this point it's not a vision Mm -hmm. We know that it's real. So he's blaming him for it. You know, you left me behind and attacks him. But when he attacks him, he drives him into the gravity drive chamber. So he's sealed in now. You know, Miller, he went the wrong way, basically. Yeah. He's he's not really going to be able to get out now. So he gets in kind of a fight with Weir. And this is where Weir tells him it's not really hell. The reality is much worse. And he shows Miller a vision, grabs him by the head. (laughs) Like that Ernest character. Remember that on Saturday morning cartoon? where Ernest P. Worrell did the <laughs> Yeah. I just, anyway. there's, it always makes me think of this meme that I see floating around and it's like me trying to show horror movies to my friends. Oh, right. <laughs> so it'd be right. me trying to show horror movies to you. <laughs> so they get in a fight and Miller grabs one of those scrubber tubes and starts beating Weir with it. Of course, Weir just like takes a couple hits and then slaps him around. Miller finally is able to reach through some flames and grab the detonator, which is weird in the shot because it shows him reaching for the flames, like reaching his arm arms through there to grab the detonator mm-hmm. but when it, sh- it, it snaps to a shot from above and he's just laying in the water mm-hmm. so it's filmed separately and can i say that weird just it all kinds of fucked up looking like i think we forgot to mention it but they have this scene where he rips his eyes out and then from that point his body becomes all scarred and well he looks like what death by a thousand paper cuts would look like <laughs> So he's got tiny cuts like all over his body. And that it was what, seven hours to put that on? Yeah. Uh, seven, eight hours. Yeah. To put that makeup on. Uh-huh. So. And it, I know I was like, okay, yeah, it really looks like something that came out of Hellraiser. Sure. Yes. But actually a Hellraiser might've, one of their later entries might've ripped that off because there's a character in Hellraiser 10, I believe uh, it's called Judgment, where there's a character called the Auditor, and that's basically what he looks like. Like, he's just got a bunch of cuts all over his body. Really cool. But yeah, the, the way I, I remember, maybe it wasn't the first time I watched the movie, but it was definitely a time later on where I was kind of like watching, but not really watching. And I looked up long, long enough to see Sam Neill and was like, holy shit, like this guy looks crazy. And remember thinking that's really scary. <laughs> now the makeup was really good. I don't have any complaints about that. The practical, what, what few practical effects they did in the end. Mm-hmm. So we're almost done. <laughs> <laughs> I, I gotta be honest, this one was tough to get through. This has been kind of a tough review. Yeah. So, Miller grabs the detonator, and he sets it off. And, and this is basically, we're at the end of the movie, and you get a, a shot of the, the, the central corridor that attaches the, the front and back of the ship as it blows up. Stark is looking through the window and sees it blowing up. They're her, She and Cooper are in the front part of the ship, so that's 
going to be their lifeboat with their stasis pods and what have you in it. And then you go out to a shot of Neptune, and now it has like a uh, a whirlpool on it, and the bottom part of the ship goes through, and then it fills back up, mm-hmm. <laughs> closes back up. And at the end of the movie, you see that Stark and Cooper were rescued 72 days later, mm-hmm. still alive in the front section. And Justin. It. And Justin. Yeah, Justin was still alive. Still fucked up, yeah. but alive. But that's really it. I mean, there's this brief, like, little two-second thing where one of the rescue guys opens his visor and, and uh, Stark sees Weir. Yeah. And then she wakes up on the floor. So it's another dream jump scare. Yeah. Which the, apparently that was that was their favorite, the dream <laughs> jump scare. And that's the end of the movie. And I don't know how I felt about it. Like, I was kind of relieved that it was over. Aww. So, really, like, I just, to kind of go back to it, when I very first watched this movie, like, I thought it was good and I looked back on it and I thought, yeah, that was a good movie. But then I haven't watched it a couple of times and recently and taken the notes and really paid attention to it a lot. I don't know. I don't know if I still like this movie. What's your take on it? So I do like this movie. Is it one of my favorites? Does it make my top five or even 10? No, probably not. But I feel like there's enough good in here that I can appreciate it. I know I've harped on this a few times, but I think had they left in what they were supposed to and it was the movie that it had intended to be, that it might have been a more well-rounded story. So I'm probably going to get some hate for this. But for some reason, horror movies set in space, I have a hard time getting through in general. Like, one of my all-time favorite movies is Alien, but even though I love it as much as I do, I almost always have to watch it in two sittings because I'll watch about half of it and fall asleep. (laughs) And then I wake up, but because I love it so much, I finish watching it after that. And this was another one of those movies where I watched it for a bit and then I was like, okay, getting pretty tired now. (laughs) And then, but I like it. So I wake up and I continue to watch it. I thought, like I said, I have nothing but good things to say about Lawrence Fishburne and Sam Neill. I think they're tremendous actors. The rest of the cast they, they were good. They were serviceable. There there was no bad acting or, in my opinion, no bad dialogue or, or uh, writing. I just feel like it's, like you said, it doesn't make a lot of sense with the things that they chose to take out of it. Yeah, and I just, I don't know. If you ask me why I have trouble with this movie now, it'd be tough because the visuals are good. The, uh, the, the effects for 1997, they're good. What practical effects you get are good. Performances are good. I like the sets, like that central corridor. They really built like a 60 mm-hmm. foot long central corridor and then layered the shots to make it look like it was longer. Right. But, like they really built that ship. Yeah. The interior and of the event horizon. So I love looks, the heart of the ship, the core, that sphere. That thing is really fucking cool. It's, you know, it's original. Not completely original, but some of the, like the core, the gravity drive is an original thing. I haven't seen that. Mm-hmm. Even though you do get the Hellraiser, like, lament configuration vibes off of it. It's not, I hadn't seen that before. Mm-hmm. And so the, the only thing that I can come down to that, I you know, the reason I don't like this movie as much as I did last week. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, is because the closer you look, the more things you see that are missing. And it does kind of drag in a couple of spots. And I think it's because when they went through the edit, all they left in was little snippets of dialogue just to help move the story forward. But you're missing some of the interesting stuff that I feel like should be there, like DJ's backstory. Mm -hmm. There has to have been something for Justin, Mm -hmm. like his engineering background in love with the thing. Mm -hmm. And, okay, call, call me a sick puppy if you want to. I'm cool with that. It's true. But I feel like if they had just had one major scene really showing what happened 
to the crew of the Event Horizon before. Just something, you know, that ending of sleepaway camp scene, you know, something that's gonna jump out and make you remember it. Like, holy shit. Like, I feel like if they had left that in there, it it didn't have to go on for, for, you know, two or three minutes, guys. But just long enough than what they gave us, something that was that would really stick with you and get in your bones a little bit. I think that might have made the movie, you know. Maybe maybe that's just me. No, I just, I don't know. Like I said, I don't think that on the first time I watched it, I, I felt like there was content missing. And yeah, when you watch it, pay attention, you can see the gaps. So more character motivation, maybe, from some of the, the other characters, like Cooper. Why was he there? I mean, yeah, he's a rescue technician, but he was an interesting character. I was He was entertaining through the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe some more time there. Like Stark, nothing bad happened to Stark. Mm-hmm. Why not? Right. So those two, I mean, unless you count Cooper getting blown into space, those are the only two characters that nothing bad happened. So mm-hmm. do they have no fear? Do they have no guilt? Mm-hmm. What's and they also implied on there? that this was supposed to be some kind of Dante's Inferno thing, and I didn't get that. Well, I think it was supposed to be symbolized by the meat grinder. Yeah, that spinny tunnel thing. I heard that, but I just um, didn't get that. So they couldn't. They actually couldn't do that shot, which I, they really built one. Mm-hmm. And then they had to shorten it up, and they filmed it all in different sections, and then had to add them together, which is the reason that when you see somebody running through there, mm-hmm. it looks kind of funny. Um, it's because nobody could run from one end to the other end of the full length version without falling over. Right. Which, if you've ever been to, was it Ripley's? Believe it or not. Yeah. In Grand Prairie, they've actually got a tunnel like that. Yeah. And you got to hang on to the handrails. That's yeah. Some disorientating it, shit. For sure. Yeah. But Our, <laughs> I remember Isabel was like terrified to go through it. Yeah. I had to carry her through there. <laughs> But, I don't know, there's too much good stuff in this movie for it to be... Oh, it's not a bad movie by any means, and I totally recommend it and suggest it. Especially if sci-fi horror is your thing, you know? If you like horror movies set in space, for sure check it out. Like I said, it's it's definitely got alien vibes, and it's definitely, you know... So, yes, and I, I don't know that I... Would I tell somebody else to watch it? I guess it's kind of where we're going to, right? Is Would we say watch it or don't watch it? Uh-huh. Would I recommend someone watch this film? Maybe. Maybe. Honestly, if you want to watch sci-fi horror and you want a, a movie that you're going to feel fulfilled at the end, if you're going to feel resolution at the end, or like you got a complete story when it was over, watch Alien 2. Aliens. Aliens. <laughs> it's number two. You know There's I mean? nothing number two about that movie. <laughs> watch Aliens. Um, I, don't know. I guess it's worth a watch. Don't spend money on it, though. Find somewhere you can see it for free. Right now it's on HBO Max. I mean, we own it, but it is on HBO Max if you guys have that streaming service. It's it's on there right now. Yeah, I mean, if it was in theaters and you were gonna have to go spend, you know, ten bucks a person, twenty bucks a person to get in and popcorn and all that, I would I'd say no. I would say it's not. It wouldn't be worth a theater visit. Mm-hmm. But yeah, if you're already subscribed to a streaming service and it's on there, yeah, watch it. <laughs> so Travis has been no fun this week, as you can tell. <laughs> Uh, this this was tough. Like I said, I really liked it until we did this. And the more I look at it, the more problems I see with it. Yeah. And I really wish that the, the editor would have just left it the hell alone. Give me the whole movie. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I really think we could have benefited from those 30 minutes. Yeah. But anyway, so next week, though, we're going to be doing something <laughs> fun, right? We're going to yeah. do Halloween 3. Yes. Season of the Witch. Yes. With so, Tom Atkins. Yeah. So and this... Tom Atkins' mustache. <laughs> yes. So this whole 
this will be our first, I guess we're going to call this Spooktober. This will be our first kind of themed series or part of our series. I think we brought it up a couple of episodes ago that we're going to be covering Halloween 3 through 7 because we feel like they don't get the love and attention that they deserve. So yeah, it's going to be fun. Can't wait to do it. Get in the middle of it. It's our tackling of the first or of the big three. So I'm totally hyped and excited and um, we hope you guys will hang out with us and check it out. So yeah, I guess on that note, we're going to take off and see you next week. Bye. See ya. But anyway, you ready for a spoiler review or spoiler warning? (laughs) (laughs) I just fucked that up. You did. (laughs) At least it'll make the blooper real. (laughs) So without further ado, guys, let's get into it. Maybe it made Love that. Malfoy or Draco's uh crop commodity. Look, you can kiss my ass because I'm done.